Thank you so much. And thank you all for worshiping. Thank you for giving out to our church. And if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, we're going to be in John chapter 8 this morning. We're going to read the verse 11 verses uh, to get us started today and have a really, I think, helpful conversation about something that we probably have heard a lot about before, but maybe never really talked that much about and never really understood the context for what is one of the most powerful stories in the Gospels, uh, one of the most uh, touching stories between Jesus and um, someone who had such a, a great need, yet did not expect to receive the help that she did at this point in her life. So uh, John chapter 8, we're going to look at the first 11 verses to get us started today. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, but early in the morning he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And he said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go now and sin no more. What an awesome story. Um, you know, what a pleasure it's been to worship with you all today. What a pleasure it always is to worship with God's people every day. You know, do you ever think of, about how each and every weekend we come alongside over a billion, that's with a B, over a billion other people who worship Jesus, even if we may all do it in different languages and different environments through different rituals and traditions. Isn't it pretty remarkable that right now along, you are alongside of, and I know different time zones and all that, but today, over the past day, over a billion people have gathered together in places like this that may not look the same and may not sound the same, but the purpose of the gathering is the same that we are alongside uh, billions of people who come together to worship a Jewish carpenter. I, I think that's pretty remarkable. And you know, we all have our ideas of what worship look like. We all have our preference of what the ideal worship service looks and feels like. And, you know, we live in a really charmed age. Uh, we're really spooled because of it, because there are churches on every corner. It's like Mark Twain said about the ancient world. Uh, you, you, you could find a king on every corner. Um, in today's world, you can find a church uh, practically everywhere. And, and there's a unique experience almost in every one of them, more than them, more than the not. Uh, you might find one 
one that's similar or identical in terms of liturgy, in terms of format, but, but there's so many factors that go into a church service uh, that most are pretty unique and pretty distinct from one another. Uh, and, and even within denominations and certain traditions and certain eras, uh, there, there's a pretty uh, different, there's a big difference across the board when, when you visit one from another. And uh, if you're in a bigger city and more diverse area, uh, again, you, there's not just churches on every corner, but there's gathering places of all kinds of religions everywhere. Uh, so there's worship sites, you know, more than, than, than you realize. Um, but in today's world, you know, worship sites and, and churches are, are like fast food restaurants. There's just more than you could ever attend uh, and experience, really. But nonetheless, uh, if you don't like what you're getting at one, sure enough, you can find one pretty quickly and pretty easily, uh, eventually, until you find one that suits your style. Now, whether or not that's the right attitude to have about church is a whole other sermon. Uh, but uh, that's just to show you um, how different today's world is from so long ago. Uh, because in today's world, uh, in one place, worship might be presented and engaged in a certain way, but in another, it's totally different. Uh, in today's world, worship services come in all styles and all sounds. Everyone has their preference. Everyone has their idea, whether it's loud and vibrant, reserved and soft. Uh, some people prefer super engaging services. Uh, others just care to sit back and be super quiet and, and just listen. Uh, you might have a preference of a tr certain tradition and, and, and you might um, prefer something completely different than the one next to you. Uh, but, but from the songs that are sung, the sermons that are preached, the rituals that are offered, uh, the style, the tone that is used, um, it, it's really hard to answer the question hey, what's worship look like or, or what's a worship service sound like because everybody has a different take and, and everywhere has a different version. Um, now, if you want to talk about how the world has changed over the last hundreds and thousands of years, uh, this might be a conversation we could have all day long because when it comes to the perceived idea of worship, when it comes to the, um, the, different, uh, the way you describe worship, uh, what we imagine today and what we enjoy today is so different. And really in a whole other category when you compare it to the way it was in the ancient world. L long before there were synagogues and churches on every corner, there was a single temple there was a single temple in the city of Jerusalem. Uh, the remnants and remains of it that can actually be visited and seen to this day. But it hasn't stood in its entirety in over 2,000, or in nearly 2,000 years. Uh, the Jewish temple, Solomon's temple, because he built it and he, he, he led the construction of it, um, was literally one of a kind in, in ancient Israel. Uh, there weren't hundreds of worship centers. There weren't uh, worship centers all over the country. There was just one place that you worshiped. And it was this temple in the city of Jerusalem. So you didn't have a choice where to attend worship if you wanted to. And as important as it is in today's world, and in, in, in today's faith, to uh, attend worship, it was practically your civil duty to attend the Jewish temple uh, to worship in those days. Their world was much different, but I, still, I don't even think we, we know, we'd know how to respond if, if we were suddenly transported back in time uh, to the temple mount and to the temple grounds um, from 1000 BC to 70 AD. So over a thousand years, uh, this was the only place you could worship, and this was the only location you could attend to worship uh, the Lord. Now, I know everybody talks about how the world has gotten so much worse, but I think this is a pretty, pretty big win for our generation uh, because we aren't, you know, tethered to a single place in a single city, right? Which is unfortunate for, for was unfortunate for those who were pretty far away from the place. Uh, but, but when we talk about worship in the temple. 
We have a completely, we have to completely detach ourselves and remove ourselves from what, from what we understand worship to be and worship services to look like in our day and age to understand how it was back then. Because I promise you, whatever you imagine worship to be like, it was completely different at the temple. The whole idea of a worship service looked, sounded, and smelled, yeah, that's right, smelled a lot different. Now, I don't know, I don't know about you, but I don't come to church to get my, my senses engaged like that. I don't really want to smell anything when I, when I come to church, I, you know, right? I just want to kind of come in and, and, and hopefully not smell myself, right? But, but, but in those days, right, it, it, there, was, there was a lot of smelling involved. Now, now you might think that's very strange, um, and, and it wasn't because they wore funky perfume or they weren't clean. We'll get to that. Uh, but uh, it was a different kind of smell. Uh, but it was also a different kind of a sound and a different kind of appearance. So picture it with me. Let's go back in time, if you will. Uh, around 2,000 years ago, um, this is probably a pretty accurate depiction of what the Temple Mount in Jerusalem looked like. Now, if you were to visit Jerusalem today, you can actually see that, that uh, the, the bottom layer, the bottom level of the wall of Solomon's Temple, it's still standing. Um, now, the, the upper levels, the upper stories were raised by the Roman Empire and were pretty much ground down in excavation, but that lower level is still there, and, and you can actually visit it actually touch part of the wall where the Jews will stand and pray. Now, of course, on the Temple Mount itself is a much different kind of worship center than was 2,000 years ago. Uh, the, the Islamic faith built a mosque to their uh, God on that ground, but, but this is a picture of what it would have looked like if you were to visit Jerusalem circa 30 AD. And, and I got to show you some important facts, and I think you'll really, it'll help you appreciate just what kind of complex this was. Because I think we often think about the temple, and we think about, you know, a football field or, or a, a, you know, entertainment arena. But, but we really haven't ever imagined just how massive of a complex this place was. So get a load of some of these numbers. The footprint of the Temple Mount was 1,500 feet long, 1,000 feet wide, 1.5 million square feet, which is about 36 acres from one corner to the other. That's a pretty big complex, isn't it? Right? A lot bigger than your biggest church you'll find in today's world. Uh, that's a big chunk of the city, actually, right? Uh, the rest of Jerusalem literally revolved around the Temple Mount. Now, it's really remarkable. If you study the temple, you'll be so impressed. But the, the outer wall was made out of pure white limestone, which was a, a very a particular quarry was, was, was uh, excavated to, to, to bring these, uh, these boulders in to uh, build Solomon's Temple. And, and later on, Herod would actually add to it. Uh, it was coated with gold and marble veneer when the sun beamed down on the temple mount it literally glistened and sparkled it's no wonder that the uh, people in the ancient world referred to the temple as the light of the world because you could see it from miles away glistening in the sun it looked more, spectac uh, more spectacular than any holy site, any religious center, at any church we've ever been. And that's just the exterior. Uh, most of the Temple Mount, like 99% of it, uh, was all open air. Uh, it was all courtyards and patios and porches. But the one interior portion at the very top of the, of the, the site, in the center, was what they called the sanctuary. It was the holy place or the holy of holies. But very, very 
very few people ever got to go inside the sanctuary. Only a small group of men would ever make it to the courtyard, let alone inside the building. Women and children never even got to go into the courtyard of the temple mount of the temple epicenter so you're probably already suspecting but let me confirm worship didn't look like what we know it to be back then there were no places to sit nobody went in the temple proper uh, but a very few group of men and and only a few times a year uh, there was no scheduled services to attend per se Worship in the temple didn't involve any of the things that we enjoy or look forward to on Sundays. Worship wasn't participatory. It wasn't engaging. It wasn't emotional. It wasn't a celebration. It was something clinical. It was something procedural because it was all about making literal animal sacrifices to atone for sin. You see, it's so much different. Today, we come together to celebrate something that has been done for us. But in those days, worship was about what was brought to God on our behalf. Because each and every uh, worship assembly featured people's forgiveness on the line. Worship wasn't an opportunity to rest or reflect on what God had done for you. It was a task-oriented, nerve-wracking, so much on the line. Is it going to be enough for us for the next season uh, uh, in terms of atonement in terms of forgiveness. And and this wasn't just a weekly activity. This was a daily activity. Emphasis, it was a daily activity. And yes, uh, not just a few hours a day. It was an all day long series of sacrifices that had to be made in order to keep the nation on good terms with God. So imagine what worship looked like. Imagine what it sounded like and imagine what it smelled like. Don't imagine choirs or preachers or congregations, but picture priests decked in white, bringing livestock, bulls and goats and sheep and doves to an altar. They would tie the animals down. They would bind them. They would slaughter them and offer their blood on various altars. Can you imagine the scene? They weren't singing hymns. They weren't sitting in a pew listening to a sermon. It was just a very selected few of people, few people taking animals from the men of families that would get so far. They would bring the animals to the altar. They would bind them. They would tie them down. They would cut their throats and drain the blood out. Can you imagine what that was like? From 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., Every day, sacrifices of all kinds were made by priests on behalf of those who visited. And if you read the book of, Levit- of Leviticus, which I'm sure, you, I'm sure you do a lot, Leviticus tells us how many kind of sacrifices were made. There were sacrifices for sins that you knew you committed. There were sacrifices you, for, for sins you didn't know you committed. There were sacrifices for your guilty conscience. There were sacrifices for people wanting to rededicate their lives. There were sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving. There were sacrifices in case you didn't get to pay someone back that you took something from you were giving it to God there were so many sacrifices it was an all-day affair there was an altar out in front of the open in the open air where 99% of these offerings were made and there was one inside the temple where a yearly offering was made and this is, again, another a pretty accurate picture. Um, out in the courtyard, there was an altar where, again, most of the sacrifices were made. But inside the temple, there was an altar where an annual sacrifice was made to uh, atone for the sins of the nation. But most of the sacrifices were made just outside the temple. Again, very, very, very few people actually got to go in the building. 
a small group of men would only ever make it to the altar in the courtyard. Again, hardly anybody else ever even made it that close. On top of these, which were all called free will offerings, there was a twice a day, every day, twice a day, every day offering made for all the people to pardon the nation, to point people uh, to point people to God's good grace for those uh, who didn't get to come uh, in person. And, and this is what the book of Exodus tells us about that offering. Now, this is what you are to offer on the altar. Two lambs a year old, day by day regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And of course, it was a tent originally. It became a temple. Before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak with you there. So the only chance they had to experience God was at this altar outside the temple. But again, only a few people actually got to go there. So I just want you to imagine the scene. There would have been thousands of animals being led on the temple mount to the holy site per day. Again, 36 acres. So you would start at the bottom. You would make your way up the temple mount. It would take you hours to get all the way to the top. Towing your animal, getting your animal inspected, taking a break along the way, uh, making sure your animal was clean, making sure that you yourself was clean through all the ritual washings that would go on. You would get to the top. You would bring your animal to the gate of the temple courtyard. You would pass it along to a priest. Thousands of animals led to the temple mount, to the holy site, sometimes even more. So much of the real estate was used to house these animals, inspect these animals, to give these animals a break. But I, I, I want you to think about it. The primary appearance of worship in those days was animals being tied to an altar, blood being collected, and fires blazing. Not what you look forward to on a Sunday morning, is it, right? Can you imagine the scene? Can you imagine the blood? Can you imagine the noise? Can you imagine the smells? Uh, as all the parts and pieces were being burned in different places for 12 hours a day, every day, everyone around the mount heard the animals crying and moaning and smelled the smells you would expect as these bodies were being burned. Now to help counter the unpleasing smells, an altar was kept ablaze with incense. Maybe you've never wondered what this was about. Exodus 30 tells us, You shall make an altar of which to burn incense. Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it every morning when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. And when the Aaron sets up the lambs at twilight, he shall burn it a regular incense before the Lord throughout your generations. Again, this was a pleasing offering to God, but also it was to help counteract all the weird and pretty uh, excessive smells from all the animals that were being killed and all that were being burned on the temple mount. So the sights, the sounds, the smells of worship 2,000 years ago were much different than what we wake up to attend on Sunday mornings, wasn't it? That's why I always chuckle when people start comparing what we do on Sundays to what was done in the temple. There's just no correlation. Uh, it was so much different. There's no comparison. But I want to clarify something about the temple. As convoluted as it was, and obviously was, uh, all of this was done to communicate a message of hope. It may evoke all sorts of emotion of judgment and condemnation, but what made the Jewish religion distinct from other pagan religions is that only animals were sacrificed in the temple. No people, which was something that was commonly done in the pagan religions. 
ultimately speaks to how the temple was not about judgment, it was about salvation, sending a message of hope. We often and rightly associate the temple with the law and the Old Testament religion, but we fail to understand that really it's about contrast. The law was given to Moses, the Ten Commandments, and then more after that. Uh, And we often think, okay, the law is what we got to do to be good with God. But do you ever stop and think about how when right after God gave the law to Moses, he gave him an entire book detailing how to make atonement for breaking it? You ever think about that? Right after God gave him the law, he said, hey Moses, I got to tell you something. Y'all aren't going to do good, at, do very well at keeping those laws. So I got to give you some information about how to make it right when you break them. And, and Moses has got a you know, notepad out and, and God says, Moses, you're going to need more than a notepad. It's going to take a whole book. And, and of course, that is what Leviticus is all about. It expounds on those few verses we read from Exodus. From the very beginning, the temple and the sacrificial system was about communicating God's plan to pardon our sin and spare us from judgment. The extravagant process was, was meant to emphasize and punctuate sin, yes, but the purpose was ultimately to express and provide God's salvation. Yes, all, this, all the many, many sacrifices made it clear we're a sinful bunch of people, but the, the reality that God was accepting those offerings instead of our own lives proved that God was a gracious God and that God was wanting to provide a way of escape for his people that yes they were sinful and yes they deserved judgment but he was pardoning them he was taking it away from them and using these animals literally as a scapegoat as an offering for their sin so yes the temple reminds us of guilt but more than that it pointed to God's grace the temple was never meant to be the final solution it was a temporary fix pointing to something that God would do it would be greater than the temple would do greater things than the animal sacrifices could do but the goal was the same from the beginning spare us from suffering the consequences of our sin transferring our sin to a sacrifice however Over the years, the Temple Mount became more about judgment than salvation. The sacrifices were still being made from sunup to sundown. There was the noise, the smells, but right outside the Temple proper was an area where some pretty nefarious stuff started going down. So let me give you an idea of what we're about to talk about. So we've already showed you the picture of the temple proper. The image is blurry, I apologize. But there was the temple proper at the top of the screen, the courtyard where the altar was. And then there was this outer courtyard, this commons area, uh, where people would gather uh, to pass their sacrifice along. Uh, again, men and women, men, men and children never got past this courtyard. Uh, but this outer courtyard was, uh, was a place where commoners would gather uh, to see their sacrifice being taken or see the animal taken from them uh, and, and, and hope to feel something uh, as they watched the priest take their animal to the altar. Now, the temple itself was about a 70,000 square foot complex, the temple and its courtyard around it. Um, but this outer courtyard was about 40,000 square foot. So think about an acre and a half of land. So that's a pretty big area, and it looks small in the picture, but that's about an acre and a half 
area where the people would gather um, all throughout the day. It was just constant crowds of people. Um, they would mingle here, uh, and, and since the religious leaders thought, well, hey, since we got these people in this courtyard, we'll just start, a, we'll put a bunch of collection pots here and take some money up from people, which is really the outer courtyard turned into this, this big bank. There would be 13 deposit boxes all around the, the courtyard. Um, hey, you can't go see God, but we'll take your money. Um, religion's always got a good way of, of, of emphasizing that. But it's here that Jesus would often mingle with the crowds and teach people who were growing disenchanted with the Jewish religion. And it was so big that nobody, they couldn't always tell that he was there whenever the, the religious leaders didn't really like him, uh, but, but they didn't always know he was there. But he began to make a lot of noise. Uh, the message from the religious leaders wasn't God's provision to pardon and save, but it became increasingly a message of, if you don't do a certain amount, then God's not going to do anything. And, and even if you do a lot, it's still not a guarantee that God's going to forgive you. Ultimately, it became about their power and the establishment. Uh, they would lord over the masses and, and were using the temple as a means to gain power to themselves. Whatever grace was formerly offered at the temple was all but washed away. It was now about instilling fear and dread. The religious leaders continually were amping up the message and rhetoric over time. And in the days of Jesus, they had taken it to the most extreme. In the courtyard where the masses would gather to feel some semblance of peace and assurance as their offerings were made, uh, hopefully they would feel forgiven and they would feel their guilt was taken away. Uh, the religious leaders would often perform public executions of those in the city that were considered the worst sinners of them all. You see, the temple had its own guard, but the religious leaders turned these guards into sort of a holiness police force. And they would send these troops into the city, and they would round up people that they suspected to be extra bad or great sinners. They would round up people, men and women, and they would bring them to the commons area and make a public example of them. All this came to a head one morning when Jesus arrived in the courtyard extra early to teach those that were already assembling to make offerings and donations. But maybe most of all, because he knew something else was going to happen that day. Early one morning, the religious leaders brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery the evening or the night before. Maybe they knew Jesus would be there as they were just doing what, but they were just doing what they did every day. They were going to stone her in front of the crowd and send a message. And this was their message. God's grace is scarce. Our sin is so great. If we ever get found out, there's no amount of sacrifice that can pay for our sin. Now, let me be clear. That was never God's message. But this is how a lot of us feel about our sin, isn't it? Maybe religion has made us feel this way about our sin. People have made us feel this way about our sin. Guilt makes us feel this way about our sin. Religion always cons people into playing games and sticking their chest out to see who's more righteous than another. When the opportunity arises, we'll knock others down to feel better about ourselves. But for a lot of us, most of us really, this is our story when we relate to God. Yeah, we've heard the gospel, we've heard about grace, but deep down we relate to God on the basis of what we've done. And our guilt and our sin and our shame is hard to break free from some time because there are people who love to remind us and there are circumstances that often remind us and cause us to relive things that we've got behind us or maybe still inside of our hearts. Maybe you're someone who does the reminding, who does the condemning, and I want to tell you a secret. If you're someone 
You, you find some religious joy in, look, in judging others and condemning others. Do you know that you do that because you yourself don't feel secure with God? The reason why we want to judge others is because we ourselves feel judged and we have to put others down to make ourselves feel better about our own unforgiven sin. But, but don't you feel the irony in the story? They bring a woman bound to the outer court of the temple and they are going to stone her. They are going to kill her and her blood will spill on the sand-covered marble floor. Meanwhile, just through the gate in the inner court and in the temple, dozens of sacrifices are being made. Lambs and goats and bulls and doves are being killed to atone for sins. But in stoning this woman... They were saying, your sin is too much. God has no solution for your sin. And there will be no salvation for you. By bringing people up to this courtyard day after day and stoning them, they were saying to the people, listen, some of y'all, you have no hope. You have no solution. You have no sacrifice for your sin. You are going to get just this close to God, just close enough for us to kill you. Day after day, just yards away from animals being sacrificed that pointed to a Savior, the religious leaders would drag men and women of poor repute and pummel them with stones. If you were on the Temple Mount, you would mostly hear sheep and cattle yelping as they were slain. But every once in a while, you would hear a man or a woman crying out for mercy, but they would receive none. Can you imagine? The temple made to show people that God was a forgiving God became the grounds for public executions. But, but the religious men would say, but the law says they must be stoned. I mean, Moses said this person should be stoned. Yeah, the law says that. The law says we're all guilty. The law says that none of us are righteous. No, not one. And let's go along with it. This particular woman, they had every right to stone her. According to the law, they were right, right, right to put her to death. And they assumed and even boasted that God was on their side as they twisted the scripture to justify themselves but condemn the most. But on this occasion, God himself showed up in their midst to make it clear his disapproval of them. Once and for all, God made it clear that none of our stories have to end in shame, guilt, or judgment because God himself has brought us mercy and grace. As these religious men thought they had Jesus cornered, they thought there's no way he's against us on this one because we're quoting God's word after all. And how can Jesus say God's word isn't right? And Jesus says, yeah, y'all got the law, right? But when did y'all become so holy that you yourselves are above it? Before you leverage the law against someone else to condemn them, you best consider what it says about you. You don't quote those verses, do you? They could have stoned her. Jesus said, go ahead. But he made them think about their own sin before they did. Hey, y'all want to corrupt this place? Y'all want to make it all about judgment? Hey, let me introduce you to the judge of the universe. You want God's honest truth? You're all deserving of judgment. 
You've turned this mountaintop meant to be a place of grace into a place where man's blood is being shed. Do you not know the only human that God has ever intended to suffer for the sins, uh, for, for sins is his one and only son? Do you not know? That's why I've come. Do you not know that I've come here to do for this woman and for all of you what these animals will never do? I guess you don't know that. I guess you're too concerned about figuring about justifying yourselves and you've got to knock someone like this down because it's easy bait. So I guess you'll get the same judgment that you're giving out to her. He knelt down and began writing on the ground as they boasted, but maybe instead of publicly shaming them like he maybe could have, and we might would say should have, he begins writing out their own sins on the ground, which as they realize, as they're convicted, they begin to leave because they don't want him to expose them. Can't you see the grace of God even in a moment when he should have made a fool of these people? He even let them have a chance to make it right. So after clearing the room, just this woman and Jesus are left. She heard his voice and not the others and she gingerly opens her eyes and lifts up her head to see it's just Jesus stooping alongside of her. And he says, woman, where are your accusers? Notice he does not say, where are those who judge you? Because they had no authority to judge. They were only accusing. So, well, 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 she was caught in the act. Listen, and it's so powerful. This is where religion gets put in this place. We have one judge. His name is Jesus. We have one judge. When man judges us, they have no authority. I have no authority to judge you. You have no authority to judge me. When I bring something against you, it's an accusation. And you know what the Bible says? You know who the Bible says is the author of accusation? You know who the Bible says is the one who accuses and those who accuse are standing in his, in his seat? Jesus says to this woman, where are those who are standing in Satan's seat before you? Because Satan is the accuser. This Jesus, this is Jesus putting his heel on the neck of Satan and reminding him that his accusatory powers do not have the final word over us. I don't know what your conscience does. I don't, I don't know what your, the people around you do to you. I don't know what kind of accusations are against you. And they may very well be, real, they may very well be grounded in truth. They may well be, be justifiable. But this is Jesus talking, not me. Jesus says to this woman, where are your accusers? And he claims victory over Satan. He looks at this woman and says, I don't condemn you. I don't condemn you. But, but Jesus, what about the law? He said, what about the law? You, you think I'm ignoring God's law? Do you know what I'm going to do a couple days from now? You know where I'm going to go a couple days from now? I'm going to be hung on a tree right outside the gate. I'm going to be hung on a cross right over there. And on the cross, I'm going to suffer for this woman's sin. I'm going to suffer for everybody's sin. All the sacrifices done in this temple, nothing compared to what's being going to be done to me. So yeah, I know what the law says. I wrote it. I know what the law, I know what's righteous, I know what's unrighteous, and I know that all of you are hopeless without my grace. All of you are hopeless without my blood. This temple was meant to point you to me, 
But somehow, someway, religion has made it the exact opposite. I don't condemn you. Go and be free from your life of sin. Listen, Christianity is a place where sin dies, but it's not a place where sinners die. Do you see the difference? Christianity is a place where, yes, sin can end, but it's not a place where sinners are condemned. It's a place where sinners are raised up and come back to life. We don't gloat over glory, over stand over anyone in their sin. We help lift them up when sin has knocked them down. We preach Jesus who raises up those who have been buried by sin. This woman's story uh, was a story we're all, we're, it's a story we're all familiar with. She was born into a fallen world. She made some unfortunate decisions and because of unfortunate circumstances, she took on a lifestyle that was completely unbecoming of anybody yet she was trapped in that lifestyle she was caught in that lifestyle and before long the shame and the guilt was so much that she doubted she would ever get free the day came when the religious leaders were going to make an example out of her and she didn't she didn't fight it she knew what she was The closest she would ever end up getting to God would be in her condemnation just a few yards from the altar that paid for some sins, but apparently not hers. But along came Jesus, and he changed everything. Not because she was looking for him, but because he was looking for her and sinners like her. He rebukes Satan's accusations against her and everyone like her. And he stoops down on our level and he says to us, in verse number 12, Jesus spoke to them again saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, shall not remain in shame, shall not remain in sin, but have the light of life. If we look to Jesus, we see that he paid for our sin. He died in our place and he gives us victory and he gives us freedom. For some of us, we've been told we'll never be accepted. We've been told that we'll never be, we can never change, we'll never be free. Maybe your own conscience tells you that, your own head tells you that, somebody else tells you that. Whether you ever change or not, God wants you to know he loves you and that Jesus is your savior. If you look to him and you can feel the weight of your sin and you want to be free, you can be, you can be. He is the light that the temple failed to be. He is the light that leads us out of darkness, that overcomes our deepest, darkest secrets and vices and fills us with faith and grace that says we can be free and we can be changed. And that's why we know worship and the beauty and the joy that we do today. The one and only Jesus can be known everywhere, not just the temple. And it's not about what we bring to him. It's what he's done for us and what he gives to us, grace and mercy unending. You come under his light, he will never cast you out. He will never condemn you. He will never shame you. But I got to say, this woman didn't come under Jesus' light. He took his light over this woman, and that's what he's done for all of us. He brings his light to us. Listen, is there a judgment coming to those who don't turn to Christ? Absolutely. But no man is in the position to leverage or exercise that judgment. And the church, by all means, we're here to shine a light of Jesus into the world that is in darkness. If you're like this woman today and you've got some things in your heart that you know are not as they should be and maybe nobody knows about them or maybe a lot of people know about them and of course God knows about them. But listen, God has found you today not to condemn you, not to judge 
judge you, not to cast you out, but to welcome you, to love you, and to speak life over you. If you're like these religious leaders today, God wants you to know that you're never going to feel better about yourself by condemning others. You need the same grace that others so desperately need. We all do. That's what the light of Jesus translates to us more than anything. God's amazing grace. God's pardon and provision of salvation. Romans 5.20 puts it so powerfully. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Yes, our sin is great. Yes, it is ever increasing. But God's grace is more abundant than our sin. So, Justin, have you seen that? What about that sin? What about those sins? God's grace is more abundant because the proof is that Jesus said to this woman, they're not going to touch you because I'm going to take that punishment on my cross. And because I'm taking your sin, you can take my righteousness. Because I'm taking your judgment, you can take my salvation. Because I'm removing from you what you deserve, I'm giving to you what you don't deserve. And that is the grace of God that will never be taken away. And that is what is the empowering work of salvation that can happen in all of our lives. You say, well, what if she just walked away and didn't leave her life of sin? Well, that means she didn't leave her life of sin. That means she left the grace of God and left the light of God. But but the point of this message isn't, well, how do you know the woman really changed? The point of the message is that everybody gets the chance under God's grace. The point of the message isn't, well, she was a sinner and she didn't pay for her sin. Well, that's not fair. The point of the message is that nobody gets what we deserve, that God steps in the gap for all of us. The point of the message is that, hey, religion, quit doing what God has undone. Quit judging those that God says, I've provided a way. And preach Jesus. The point of the message is if you feel like this woman and religion has told you you're done and people have judged you and people have condemned you, the point of the message is that Jesus stands beside you and says they're not getting to you because I'm going to let them get to me first. And yes, you can walk away from God's grace. Yes, you can refuse to receive God's salvation. Plenty of people will. But the light of Jesus says you aren't going to go down that road without understanding that God loves you. And that no matter what you've done and how much sin you continue to commit, God will never stop loving you. And eventually, eventually, if enough people remind you of God's love and the grace of God is given to you so much through the church and through the people in your life, eventually your heart will become so heavy and your conscience will become so heavy that you will not be able to resist the love of God that he has for you. Because yes, yes, we don't deserve it. But because of God's grace, our hearts can be softened, our lives can be changed, and the light of salvation can open all of our eyes. Even on Judgment Day, God's word to those that don't accept him is not going to be a joyful, glad condemnation. It's going to be look to Jesus because everything you needed was provided in him. God's feelings don't change for people. He loves you. In spite of what we've done, he always will. Romans A1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So the the answer is, the secret is, the solution is that your forgiveness and freedom is found in Jesus. Look to him, rest in him, trust in him. His light will lead you to a life. So if you feel condemned today, 
and maybe justifiably so because of things you've done? Jesus says, let me tell you the secret. Yeah, you might deserve it, but I've given you what you don't deserve. And he's gonna continue to love you and show you that grace until your heart, your heart melts enough for you to receive it. Just like he took up for this woman, he takes up for you. He fends off the religious, he fends off the judgment, he fends off the condemnation. He says, hey, come under my light. If you're someone who just has trouble accepting this, the Bible says, hey, we're all sinners. We've all fallen short. We need to realize how Jesus is the source of our salvation, not what we've done, not what we do. The secret to your forgiveness and freedom is found in Christ. Look to him, rest in him, trust in him. If you ever doubt that, remember the story of the woman formerly caught in sin, but miraculously released both from judgment and from bondage. They came to Stoner and they had the Bible on their side, but Jesus stepped in and said, y'all haven't heard the whole story. And of course, we know the rest of the story. And that's why we're here today, because Jesus gave us what we couldn't get for ourselves. Thanks be to God for his amazing grace. I don't know what your story is, but I promise you this, Jesus' grace is enough for you. Your sin may have increased, but his grace abounds more and more. Lindsay's gonna come play for a moment of invitation. If there's anybody here today that needs to be refreshed and reminded of the saving power of Jesus, I want you to know that if you just come under his light, if you allow him to speak life over your heart, you can have the salvation that he's promised all of us that he gave this woman today. If you're someone that, just to be honest, you've begun living on what you do and you justify yourself by what you do and you haven't ever remained in that grace of God, come back to Jesus come back to Jesus and for who, what, no matter what, no matter what your situation is, God loves you. He doesn't condemn you. And your story does not have to end with shame and sin and guilt, but it can be changed by the grace and mercy of God. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. Thank you for meeting this woman, for intervening in this woman's fate. Yes, the law condemned her. And yes, religion condemned her. And yes, her own lifestyle condemned her. But you, you loved her. And you gave her another chance. And you pardoned her sin. Lord, the irony of the whole situation, they were going to stone her not a, not a few yards from the altar that was supposedly there to forgive. Lord, a lot of us have been burned and hurt by religion. A lot of us have been confused by all the sorts of things that religion teaches. But Jesus reminds us of the simple gospel that he sent that he came to bear our sins, to pay for our sins, to wash us clean and to give us life. Father, I pray you would speak to the hearts of the people here today. If there's anybody in the house that doesn't have Jesus in their hearts, they feel condemned, they feel the weight of sin and guilt. Lord, could you wash them clean today? Could you cleanse them from top to bottom? Lord, for those that are just needing a reminder and need to be encouraged, I pray that this message would accomplish that. For all of us, let us not walk away from Jesus because he alone has the power to save. We ask this in his name. Amen.